This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As clinicians, we're used to obtaining health information from our patients through a medical history, performing a physical exam, and then ordering a variety of lab tests or imaging studies. We then formulate a differential diagnosis and eventually a diagnosis to explain the patient's health problems. But what happens when a diagnosis isn't obvious or we're uncertain as to what may be causing the patient's problems? What if a patient asks us a question and we don't know the answer? How do we express our uncertainty to our patients and how do our patients react to our uncertainty? What's the best approach to take with patients when we're unable to find an explanation for their symptoms and how do patients feel when we tell them we don't know the answer to their question? In this podcast, we'll discuss diagnostic uncertainty and how to approach our patients when we can't find a specific diagnosis to explain their symptoms. Our guests include Dr. Elizabeth Gilman and Dr. Christopher Stevenson, both from the Division of General Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Liz and Chris, welcome and thank you for taking this interesting but un somewhat unusual topic. Yeah, thank you so much, Daryl. Well, let's start by talking a bit about how we deal with the uncertainty in the practice of medicine. I have uncertainty every day. You know, it's just a matter of degree. You know, there are times when I'm like 98% certain that the patient has something, but others maybe more like 15, 20%. So I suspect you're both much smarter than me. So <laughs> how do you deal with uncertainty? That's a great question. So first, we see a lot of uncertainty in general internal medicine here at Mayo. One of the places where Dr. Gilman and I both work is in the consultative medicine practice. And so this is our national practice where people are coming from all over the nation to Mayo Clinic for that second opinion or that referral. So many of them are coming with that uncertainty or the unclear diagnosis already. But you know, before we really talk about uncertainty, I wanna take a step back and actually define what uncertainty is. And I think we have two buckets here. We have chance uncertainty. This is the uncertainty that just happens by random chance. And it's difficult to predict this. Will a patient have a side effect to a medication? What will happen there as well? Then there is uncertainty from incomplete knowledge that arises. So this is either limitations in existing knowledge about a medical question or limitations in the decision-making ability of ourselves. So do we either not know the answer or does the medical literature not know the answer? Now, one of the challenges with uncertainty is that clinicians often aren't comfortable being uncomfortable, but we need to fix this. Discussing uncertainty in clinical decisions is critical for shared decision-making, yet studies consistently show that clinicians feel uncomfortable and don't often communicate uncertainty. And this may be because it's a part of our culture that we might feel that uncertainty is equivalent to either ignorance or failure. And that's a part of the culture that really needs to change. And this is important. An article just came out in JAMA that showed that physicians who had a higher tolerance for uncertainty, well, they had higher patient satisfaction scores as well. You know, we're used to having patients who come in with, you know, bread and butter internal medicine problems, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, BPH. And those are pretty straightforward. But is there much in the literature regarding how often patients present with clinical symptoms 
but a diagnosis is not obvious? Do we know how often that happens? This is really hard to get a handle on, isn't it? There was a recent systematic review published by BMJ Open, which had a wide range from 2.9% to 76% of patients come in with uncertain diagnoses. So there was a wide variation in the literature that they reviewed there. There's some nice 2008 data, a little bit old now, but from the British Medical Journal that states that one quarter of primary care visits in the UK come with some diagnostic uncertainty. And about a third of patients with neurological complaints are unexplained by tertiary care neurologists in the United Kingdom. So I think that this shows that this is prevalent. It is around us all. I'm sure that the primary care physicians out across the country see this on a daily basis with one of their patients. It, you know, a quarter to a third of patients is just most of the patients we see during the day. But getting a handle on what that is in the United States is kind of challenging because for the reasons that Chris just alluded to, Admitting diagnostic uncertainty is very challenging for us. Yeah, well, and and Liz, I think another challenge here is that the language can be confusing here with un, with these unexplained symptoms and diagnostic uncertainty as well. You know, we have buckets of persistent physical symptoms, functional symptoms, somatic, medically unexplained. We sometimes place these in buckets for fibromyalgia, IBS. MECFS, and maybe in a larger bucket of central sensitization, but it gets to be really challenging when we don't have some unified language to help describe this as well. Well, I can recall when we knew very, very little about fibromyalgia, and now the mechanism at least is known. And I think it takes time to reduce our uncertainty about certain problems and um, suspect someday we'll have a bit more certainty about things that we have no clues about now. How do clinicians express their uncertainty to patients? Yeah, this is another challenging one. And should we tell our patients when we don't know? And as Chris alluded to, the culture is brought up. You know, you're sitting in medical school and you're pimped on these diagnoses and different things like the four presentations of pancreatic cancer, and you're made a fool if you don't know the answer to it. And so admitting when we don't know the answer is ingrained to us that we are not supposed to do that. But I think it's okay to ask or tell our patients we don't know. You know, there's some information out there that, you know, telling your patients that you don't know is better than saying it's all in your head. And so there's different approaches to this, that admitting you don't, I don't know shows a humbleness and a willingness to continue to look for that answer rather than writing a patient off by saying, you know, I don't know, but you, it's just your head. We're not, we'll deal with it later and, and shutting the door, making sure that you're qualifying. I don't know is different than I don't know, but I'm trying to find out is different than I'm not sure. I don't know. Don't come back and see me anymore. I believe you and I don't know. I know your symptoms are real, but I don't understand exactly why they're happening is important as well. Pretending to have an explanation is actually worse than telling your patient you don't know as well. And that discredits any future recommendations you're going to make for that patient. You know, when they need to go on blood pressure medication, they're not going to listen to you because you've discredited their opinions in the past. I think it's reassuring to patients too, to admit when we don't know, you know, and it's the practice of medicine right now where we're constantly looking at up to date or recent literature to help us with questions and answer the patient's questions. And so using specialists in this way, or even the diagnostic testing to make sure we're ruling out those life-threatening illnesses is important so that we can tell the patients we're on this journey with them and that we're not letting them do this on their own, that we're there with them. Well, I think the days when patients assumed we knew everything are gone. And I certainly tell my patients, I don't know, I I do that often. 
And I take that as a learning opportunity to say to the patient, well, let's look up that answer together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll go on a reputable site. And that also then teaches the patients what are reputable sites that they can look up information when they don't have their answers. And I find the patients accept that quite nicely. Kind of a humbleness, as you mentioned, Liz, that um, I don't know everything. It's just too complicated. There's too much there. I think it's also important to help patients understand, too, that our minds and our human bodies are such an amazing creature that we aren't going to be able to explain everything and the interactions between everything that happens in our bodies. And and that's just, unfortunately, we're not there as as a medical society yet. Mm -hmm. We don't have the technology yet. You think patients' reaction to us letting them know we don't know the answer is acceptable to them? Or do they leave thinking, well, I'm going to find somebody else? I love that because I think as, as Liz has highlighted here a bit, it's partially how we tell them that we don't know. So there's this great study that I love where they, they basically had three different groups. They had a group say, well, throw their hands up. I'm just not sure. Another group kind of gave this broad differential. And then another group said, well, my most likely diagnosis. And those who gave the broad differential or the most likely diagnosis, basically patients thought that they were just as confident in their abilities compared to the ones who were just said, I'm not sure, and kind of didn't give a next step. Those were the ones who had the lowest perceived level of trust and confidence. So I think patients expect that there's going to be some level of uncertainty here, Mm -hmm. but they're coming to us for our expertise. They want to know what we're thinking. So what are the possible differentials that we're thinking? And if we aren't sure, what are the resources that we can reach to try to explore that? You know, I saw another great article that was looking at the time it takes for medical knowledge to double in society. And that doubling time of all of medical knowledge to double has decreased every year. And so now we're looking at all of medical knowledge doubling within a 10-year period compared to this used to take 50 years for all of medical knowledge to double. And it's not possible for us as clinicians to know all of those facts. So expressing that uncertainty, knowing where to go, guiding the patients, that's crucial. Well, what's the role of getting a second opinion or referral? You know, Mayo is a referral practice and we do see patients who've been to multiple centers and haven't received an answer. So when should we get a referral to a specialist or a second opinion? And, and when is enough enough? You know, how many second opinions can you get? Yeah. So there is a 2017 study of patients who are coming to Mayo Clinic and as many as 88% of those patients go home with a new or a refined diagnosis. And so I think that's really telling. So there is value in that second opinion. Some studies from the early 2000s, though, show that about 50% of patients back then weren't getting second opinions. And I anticipate that's probably similar to what we're seeing now. And this is really important because as clinicians, when we diagnose someone with something or we see it in the chart, we are now predisposed to having an anchoring bias towards whatever they have been diagnosed with. So potentially we have a patient coming in with an autoimmune condition in the chart it says rheumatoid arthritis and we cement on that. And that's just normal human tendency. 
That second opinion gives it a chance to have a fresh set of eyes look at it, hopefully avoid that anchoring bias. And I'll say, is there something else going on? Because if that patient, let's say they're not getting better with their rheumatoid arthritis, that should be ringing our alarm bells, that pattern recognition or something isn't right. Pull us out of that anchoring bias and relook and say, what's going on with this patient as well? So there's value in not only expressing uncertainty to the patient, but in expressing that uncertainty for yourself as well. And Daryl, you, you asked that kind of follow-up question on, you know, when is the workup enough? Mm-hmm. There are really two things I want to say with that. So the first, we know that patients who have undiagnosed illnesses, about 50% of those patients have associated anxiety and depression. And this highlights on what Liz just mentioned earlier. It is so important to focus on both the mind the body, the whole person there. And there can be a chicken or an egg. Is it the depression and the anxiety that are contributing to the somatic symptoms or the somatic and symptoms contributing to the symptoms of the depression anxiety? It can snowball. And that's what I usually tell my patients. Regardless of if it's the anxiety and depression that's causing the symptoms or vice versa, we need to treat their mental health because that's going to help break that cycle. And so the other part then is, well, at some point, we need to acknowledge we've done our due diligence. The patient's been referred to specialists. They've had that tertiary referral. We've done an appropriate diagnostic strategy for our top differential. And now we need to start focusing on symptom management rather than continuing on a diagnostic odyssey. You know, I think it's important that this line is different for every patient as well. And so it is our role as physicians to rule out those life-threatening conditions first, or those ones that are easily treatable. So in the instance of neurologic symptoms, you know, to make sure that it's not uh, multiple sclerosis or something that we need a treatment for. And then we have to weigh the risks of iatrogenic harm too. As we continue to send these patients for testing and procedures, we are at risk of harming the patients at a certain point as well, whether it's physical harm, financial harm, emotional harm. And so we need to weigh that in with every patient. And again, this is where the individualized patient doctor relationship is going to come in too, because it's probably different from the patient I see at 9am versus the patient I see at 1030am as well. Chris, I want to go back to something you stated about when there can be a mental health overlay to this or a component of it, of their symptoms. And that's where the art of medicine comes in. That That has to be dealt with so tactfully because so many patients, when you start talking about maybe there's some component of depression, they have the immediate idea that, oh, this doctor thinks I'm crazy. I'm depressed. I need to see a psychiatrist. It takes some real skill to handle that correctly, but you're so right. I don't know which comes first. Does the chronic illness result in depression or does depression result in chronic symptoms? It's, It's really hard to tell. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. And I think that's part of the challenges in our society as well. There's been a stigma associated with mental health and and we're seeing that stigma thankfully start to dissipate a bit. But again, when we diagnose someone or ask questions about their diabetes, there's not this stigma of, oh, my blood sugars. So why do we have that same thing with depression when we talk Mm -hmm. about their mood and you're feeling down? And suddenly we're concerned about the patient becoming defensive. And it's true. It's a societal, cultural shift that needs to occur there. Well, I want to take advantage of your experience in this area. And I want to ask you what you use and what you feel is the best approach to take when you've seen a patient and we're the fourth institution this patient has been to. 
multiple consultations, imaging studies, and nothing has revealed the diagnosis. How do you deal with that patient? What do you tell them that makes them leave satisfied and not going to go see a fifth or sixth opinion? You know, one of the things that I fall back with my patients, I'm a very visual person and I like to draw them pictures and talk about how, you know, the body perceives things, even though there isn't physical stimuli to perceive things. And so we know through old fibromyalgia data that the neurotransmitters can be offset in different pain, chronic pain syndromes. And so whatever trigger that was, and we know there's some sort of trigger in a lot of these unexplained symptoms, whether it's a viral infection or a car accident or whatever it is, and that we just need to work on resetting those symptoms. We focus on that you know, we've ruled out these life-threatening conditions, and now it's really trying to work on symptom management. So shifting that mindset from one of diagnosis to one of management. And it doesn't mean we might come up with a diagnosis later, but right now we can't. We don't have it. We have that uncertainty. And so let's focus on symptom management. So focusing on things that are within control. So diet, healthy eating, you know, making sure everybody can uh, has movement in their life, or stress management, adequate sleep. And as Chris mentioned, treating the concomitant anxiety and depression that is often with these, whether it was the chicken or the egg, and making sure that it's a journey and that we're, we're here them, we believe them, but we're going to shift our focus towards management and quality of life rather than working on a diagnosis. Yeah, I agree with that. And the other thing I'd add, I often set really clear expectations and expectations at that first visit when they're coming with those symptoms that I'm not really sure what's going on. I will say upfront, these are really complex symptoms and there are a wide number of things that can contribute to this, but we may go through this algorithm and at the end of the day, we may not have a diagnosis or that diagnosis may be something like fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. And so I, I plant those seeds at the beginning. So then when we're coming back after the workup, I can say, do you remember how we talked about that? There were a lot of symptoms here and it wasn't fitting in a clear path, but that maybe it would look like fibromyalgia, maybe it would look like chronic fatigue. And so that way the patient is aware that, well, yeah, this was already in the back of my mind. Those expectations were already set. And I think that can really help the discussion as well. And even without the labels of chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, so many of these unexplained symptoms or diagnostic uncertainty, abdominal pain, different things like that fall in this likely the same pathophysiology. So. Yeah. And my approach is very similar to what you both described. Uh, this is a time for good communication with your patient. It's a time to show as much empathy as you can show to them. I use we a lot as I am in partnership with you. We're going to go into this journey into your illness together. I use a lot of nonverbal communication, good eye contact, take very few notes, spend a little time looking at the computer monitor, my body position facing them. All of that seems so important. Sometimes, especially with like rheumatologic problems, I say sometimes we need more time for this disease to declare itself in terms of what it is. It could be several things and we need a little bit more time. The good news is we've ruled out some very serious problems. And then I think what's most important is follow-up, you know, giving them the support saying, you know, I'm not going to just toss you out. I want to see you back. I want to see how you're doing, or at least I want to hear from you. Let me know how you're doing in two months, three months and so forth. And I've had patients leave, I think, with really a good feeling after an encounter like that. Well, you've covered some really interesting areas. Can you give maybe two or three key points, which maybe summarize our discussion on diagnostic uncertainty? 
Yeah, you know, I think the first one would be become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uncertainty is part of the medical process for both your patients as well as yourself. Communication of that uncertainty is part of the shared decision-making process. And then avoid that premature closure or the anchoring. There is value in that second opinion. But after that due diligence, you know, avoid going down the diagnostic odyssey. Focus on management, on what the patient can do to help improve their symptoms. We've been discussing diagnostic uncertainty with Dr. Elizabeth Gilman and Dr. Christopher Stevenson, both internists from the Mayo Clinic. Liz, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your views with us. This was actually a very interesting topic. I, uh, I enjoyed it. Thanks, thank Darryl. you so much, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.